Thanks, Mark. <laughs> yeah, you guys can clap for the band. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, though, thank you for leading us this morning, Mark, and the team, and uh, it's good to give Roly a Sunday off, I know that. Uh, my name is Steve, I'm the lead pastor here, welcome again to Discovery, and uh, don't mean to begin on a somber note, but I do want to start with a moment of prayer here. Um, Many of you know we've been uh, supporting Danita's Orphanage for a number of years now. We've sent teams down to Haiti uh, at different times in our history. Wanted to do that again this year. Um, Weren't able to for a variety of reasons, one of which is that there's just a lot of crazy stuff going on in Haiti. And with all the other things going on in our world, I think sometimes we uh, maybe don't hear about it or lose sight of some of those things. Um, But it's definitely happening. I got an email from them on Friday. Uh, from uh, Danita's Orphanage saying, can you be praying for us that the, uh, the civil unrest, the political unrest in our country right now is, is crazy and there's a lack of supplies and, and even just some things like gas uh, they're running out of. And so the generators that help uh, power the ministry that they're doing down there are about to run out of, of fuel. All these kinds of things that we sort of take for granted are, are very much uh, up in the air for them. So they sent out a, a fairly urgent plea on Friday to just be in prayer uh, for them and more specifically for their country as it's just uh, in turmoil right now. And if you know anything about history, you know that the, the history of Haiti uh, is, is super gnarly. And there's just been a lot of, of great injustice that's happened there. So I wanted to begin this morning on that note, praying for them, for our brothers and sisters in Haiti. So would you join me in a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we do lift up our friends uh, in Haiti, Danita's Orphanage, the leadership there, the kids that have found uh, a new lease on life through their ministry. God, we pray for your protection over them. Uh, we ask that you would provide for uh, their needs. As we've been looking at Matthew, you've, you've taught us to pray for these really basic things. Give us this day our daily bread. Would you give them this day their daily needs, whatever those things might be? Uh, would you protect the work that they are doing there? Um, And then, God, we also just pray for the country of Haiti in general, uh, knowing that there is a tremendous history of injustice and um, atrocities that have happened uh, in that country to create the situation that is there today. We ask, God, that you would intervene, that your peace would reign there, that they would experience your kingdom and your shalom in a way that that country has never experienced it before. We pray all of this. In the strong name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will come around and uh, make sure that you have one of those. Uh, We have been in this journey in Matthew now for uh, almost three months. We're about a quarter of the way through it. And I just want to do a little bit of a recap to create some context for where we are as we look at Matthew 8 this morning. So, We've split this journey up into seven movements. We're now in the third movement. Movement one was all about the arrival of Jesus, the the events and circumstances around his birth, how he fulfilled all of these ancient promises for a long-awaited Savior, Messiah, and King, and then at the same time defied many of those expectations. And that was where we were most of December. Movement two 
was looking at Jesus' first big teaching in Matthew. This teaching we refer to a lot as the Sermon on the Mount. Some of Jesus' most famous words known both inside and outside the church. And now we're in movement three, which is full of stories and action and interaction that Jesus has with a wide variety of characters. We started this last Sunday looking at some of Jesus' miracles. We saw how he performed uh, uh, miracles that helped uh, point to uh, God's desire for his creation, that helped prove who he was, and then reveal the pattern of how Jesus saves, this pattern of vulnerable suffering that produces our salvation. Now, if there's a, a theme, a word, a big idea that's kind of been weaving its way through this whole thing, all three movements leading us to this point, it's the word authority. And that first movement, King Herod, you remember, was afraid that his authority was going to be challenged by this new king of the Jews. And so he orders this, uh, this horrible atrocity, right, of killing all these babies to try to make sure that he kills this king who would be challenging him. We saw Satan undermine or try to undermine Jesus' authority as he tempts him three times in the desert. Movement two, Jesus contrasts himself with the teachers of the law in his mountaintop sermon. And then when he's done, the people who heard that teaching recognize there's something different. There's some qualitative difference about the authority that Jesus has, especially compared to their leadership. Now in this third movement, we're seeing Jesus exercise authority in some different ways, authority over the spiritual world, over the natural world. Now, authority is a word that we don't really like. Okay? We don't get excited about this idea of authority. There's a certain level of prestige even in our culture, in our world, uh, that comes with being anti-authority. We want to buck the trends, disrupt the system, drain the swamp. We don't like being told what to do or when or how to do it. And yet, at the same time, we still give a tremendous amount of authority to people. Politically, economically, socially, personally, there's all sorts of ways in which we confer and give authority away to other people. Some of you are here in Davis for this specific purpose. You are pursuing a degree, a program that will give you a, a certain level of status as an authority. A degree, especially an advanced degree, allows you to speak authoritatively on things that I have to Google just to begin to understand what the heck it is that you're talking about. So we, we uh, confer and grant authority to people in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes it's structurally, titles, promotions, degrees. It can also, though, be established through life experience, and, and in particular through painful life experiences. There's an intrinsic link between suffering and authority. And there's a wisdom that's only produced through moving through these difficult moments in life, through suffering. Think of the, the difference between what we might call a youthful uh, hipster protester, okay, this guy playing this drum right here, and someone like Nelson Mandela. Okay? Now, obviously, this is an extreme example. I'm sort of playing on some stereotypes here. But there's a difference between that guy playing that drum 
and someone like Nelson Mandela. There's a weight, there's an authority to Mandela's words that come from 27 years in prison, a lifetime of fighting against injustice and for freedom. One of my favorite Mandela quotes, I'm fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nature or nurture, I can't say. There were many dark moments when my faith in humanity was sorely tested, but I would not and could not give myself up to despair. That way lays defeat and death. You have to pay attention. You have to pay attention when someone uh, like Mandela says something like that, right? Someone who has been through the things that he's been through, experienced the things that he's experienced. There's a weight to those words because there's this link, a deep connection between suffering and authority. I want you to hold on to that idea. We're going to come back to it again at the end. But right now, let's look at Matthew chapter 8. Our text begins in verse 18, and it kind of breaks up nicely into three chunks. We're going to look at the first chunk here for a little while, and then we'll get to the, the next two at the end, okay? So verse 18 begins like this. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple came to him, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There are all kinds of counterintuitive, paradoxical things going on in the three scenes that we're going to be looking at this morning. And um, again, we'll kind of move through this chunk by chunk. But diving right in here at this first section, we see Jesus desiring to move away from a crowd. Now, to this point in Matthew's telling of the Jesus story, he's been very embracing of crowds, both before, during, and after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is surrounded by lots of people. And you might think, oh, he wants to get away from this crowd uh, because, you know, the demands on his time and his energy, he needs some peace and quiet. He needs to get away from it all for a few moments. But look at what he says. This is where he wants to go. He says, we are going to the other side of the lake. Now back in verse 5 of chapter 8, we're told that Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum is in Galilee. He's been in Galilee for most of the time during what we call his public ministry to this point. So going to the other side of the lake, and as we'll see here in just a moment, he's going to the, the Gadarenes. There should be a map here where it says Gergesa. To go to that side of the lake is to go to Gentile territory. They're not going to the other side of the lake because there's a nice resort over there that they're going to do some R&R at. This is a whole other kind of challenge. There's risk, there's uncertainty, and especially for a Jewish rabbi with Jewish disciples, there is a high level of potential for defilement to become unclean. This was a very big deal for them. So again, the other side of the lake, not an escape. It's a whole different kind of challenge. Now, before they get into the boat, Jesus is interrupted. And this is one of the ways that I am most challenged by Jesus. He's, he's so good at, at sort of uh, interacting with redeeming interruptions. I am I'm terrible with interruptions. Jesus, though, really good at them. First interruption comes from a teacher of the law. 
This is important. Jesus has set himself against the teachers of the law. We saw this again at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and in a variety of other places. He's been uh, holding himself in contrast to them. And so here comes a teacher of the law, sort of willing to cross this invisible line and say, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, we might expect Jesus to be impressed by this. Wow, this guy is, is willing to, to sort of turn his back on uh, uh, his, his colleagues. He's going to follow me wherever, uh, wherever I go. This is very impressive. A gutsy move, a big claim. And again, all of this comes after Jesus has said, we're going to the other side of the lake. Where there are Gentiles, where there are enemies, where you might become unclean. So it looks like this guy is coming to Jesus with, with what we might think is the right combination of boldness and humility. Exactly the kind of person that you would think would make a great disciple. But Jesus, surprisingly, paradoxically, gets a little bit snarky with him. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What? What does that mean? Now here we begin confronting the reality that following Jesus is not all puppies and rainbows. There's a lot of teaching out there that can make it sound like following Jesus makes your life better, easier, uh, more successful, all these sorts of things. And there are definitely ways in which Jesus makes our life better. He offers us the best possible news for humanity. He invites us to live in that reality by orienting us towards what is real and true. But there is a cost. There is a cost. And I think the paradox of the best news possible and the great cost of following Jesus is one of the most difficult tensions for American Christians to live with. Almost every other place we go, every other message we receive reinforces the idea that we are at the center of the action. We are the most important player in the game and our success, our comfort, our well-being is the highest priority. And then along comes Jesus, this homeless dude with no place to lay his head and we don't really know what to do with that. Now, so let's look a little bit more at what's going on here in this scene. Why does Jesus respond in this way? Love is not always a pat on the back and a reassurance that everything is going to be okay. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we need that. But to love someone is to help them deal with and face reality. You want to follow me wherever I'm going? Jesus asks, you need to know this. This is not going to be the easiest road. This narrow road, this single-minded pursuit, it will stretch you and it will force you to confront all kinds of things about yourself and about this world that we live in. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to count the cost? What we see here is that Jesus has the authority to define the terms for what it means to follow him. 
Jesus has the authority to define the terms for what it means to follow him. And this becomes even more clear in the next interaction that Jesus has. This guy shows up and and, and says, uh, hey, actually this is one of his disciples who says, hey, I just need to go bury my dad and and then I'm ready to go wherever you want to take me. Now there's all kinds of cultural stuff going on here. We don't get a lot of the details. But what we do know is that giving a parent a proper funeral and barrier in Jewish culture was a big thing. This was a significant moment, and it required a lot of time for mourning before life was able to go back to normal. We don't know if this man had an aging father and he's sort of waiting it out to see what happens. We don't know if, if his father has already passed away and he's in this time of mourning and he's just asking Jesus to give him a little bit of extra time before he can go. Some people speculate that uh, he doesn't want to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And so he's using a very uh, culturally appropriate excuse to get out of that. Whatever the issue is, Jesus makes it very clear the first priority is to follow him, and then the rest sorts itself out. Now, real quick here, uh, just a bit of an aside, a word about family obligation, because I think this is a big question for a lot of us. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we just blow off our families in order to follow him? Well, my very quick and inarticulate answer to that is it sort of depends. (laughs) Different cultures and different families have different values and sort of issues wrapped up in this question. And I've personally seen a lot of damage done in the name of this verse. Some very poor decisions uh, made and justified in the name of, I'm just following Jesus. That's why I'm leaving my family or or whatever the, the issue was. Scripture teaches us to honor our parents. It uses the language of family to talk about church. Family is not something you disconnect yourself from in order to follow Jesus. Now, however, that doesn't let us off the hook here. There's a deeper question, uh, an interpretive issue at play in this scene. The question for us is not how much rejection do we need to show our family in order to prove what a great follower of Jesus we are. The question is this. What kind of authority are we going to allow Jesus to have in our life? We follow Jesus on his terms, not on ours. And so what Jesus does here with these guys is give them this very loving, honest challenge to consider the cost. And we might say it this way. It would be unloving of Jesus to leave the cost part out of the conversation. So for us in the 21st century here, rather than trying to figure out, again, how much we need to turn our backs on our families, we need to be asking the deeper question, if Jesus were to get lovingly snarky with us about our, our priorities and our schedule and our lives, what would he press on? What would he challenge us on? What would he challenge you on? What would he challenge me on? What cost would he invite us to consider Now, there are as many answers to that question as there are people here this morning. But that being said, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here. I'm going to push on two that I think Jesus would name if he were having a conversation with most of us today. And and I'm pressing on these because these are very much things that I wrestle with and struggle with. 
So the first is this. I, I, I can imagine, um, and this relates to that teacher of the law, I can imagine a, a young pastor, a young leader, someone like me 15 years ago, coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm down. I'm radical. Let's do this. And I can imagine Jesus with great love saying back to this person, back to me, are you willing to follow me even if it doesn't look like your ideals? Are you willing to follow me if I lead you into something that is not your perfect expression of church? I think this is a really big one today. We have so many options when it comes to church expressions. In my office, I have books about simple church, organic church, missional church, barefoot church, hip-hop church, multi-site church, and on and on it goes. I, I, I ran out of room on the screen, so I had to just stop at some point. But there's, there's, there's so many more of these things, right? And I, I've read these books. I've been excited about each of them at different points in my ministry life. But again, I've had to wrestle with this question. Am I following Jesus or am I seeking the perfect expression of church? Am I following Jesus or am I seeking the perfect expression of church? And, and to be quite frank uh, and maybe a bit crass, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> now we need to land somewhere with some of these things. Models and, and structure and all that is important. But at the end of the day, guys, I just want to be following Jesus. And, and that journey has been way more interesting than any of the books I've read about whatever the hot new idea or thing is. I think Jesus would press us on this church expression issue if he were with us today. Second thing, I think Jesus would lovingly challenge us on the idol of kids programming and sports. Kevin DeYoung writes, We live in an age where the future happiness and success of our children trumps all other concerns. Parenting may be the last bastion of legalism. And again, this is, this is real life for me anyway. I can imagine Jesus saying, or I can imagine myself coming to Jesus and saying, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go, just I got to coach my girls' basketball team first, which is, again, a real thing <laughs> for me. And I can imagine Jesus saying, you know what, follow me and let the rest sort itself out. Now, these are big questions, massive issues for us. I'm not saying go cancel all of your kids' activities, okay? Please don't, <laughs> please don't hear that point. But parents, we need to wrestle with this question. What runs our family? What is the organizing principle of our family life? If Jesus looked at our lives, our schedules, what would he lovingly challenge us on? Again, the deeper interpretive point here is not about these guys. It's about us. It's about wrestling with this question of cost. Now, it's very interesting how this thing ends. The scene ends very ambiguously. We're not told explicitly what these two guys decide to do. And I was reading um, a really interesting thing as I was getting ready for this talk. Americans overwhelmingly assume that they give up. 
that, oh man, Jesus has raised the bar too high and they, they turn and go back to whatever it is that they were doing before. In other parts of the world, though, the assumption is that they, they count the cost and they do it. I find that to be very fascinating. Either way, we're not told exactly what happens. Look at the next verse, though, verse 23. He got in the boat and his disciples followed him. Now, it says disciples here, but to this point in Matthew, Jesus has called a few different individuals to follow him. He has not actually named the disciples yet. That's going to happen in the next chapter. In Luke 8, Luke chapter 10, John chapter 6, we see that there were more than just the 12 who were considered to be disciples of Jesus. There's some ambiguity here. We don't know if these two guys got in this boat. What we do know from Matthew chapter 4 is that Jesus has invited Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John to follow him. And all four of them were fishermen who had spent quite a bit of time on this lake. Now look at what happens next. A furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John, these are guys that knew boats. They knew the Sea of Galilee. They had been through storms before. So for them to be freaked out by this storm means it was a big deal. Matthew uses the word furious. Waves crashing over the boat. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus, who had no place to lay his head, is sleeping in the boat in the middle of this storm. Now, part of the cost of following Jesus is getting in that boat, crossing that lake, and going to these uncomfortable places. But here are four guys, at least, who, uh, who were in one of the most comfortable and familiar places that they could be, and it still gets uncomfortable for them. Right? They think... They're going to die. Jesus, do you not realize we're about to drown here? And Jesus calls them out on this. You of little faith. Better translation is little faiths. Oligopistoi, which is a fun word to say. Little faiths. Now, this is one of the things that I love about the Gospels that I love about Scripture in general, most of the guys in this boat went on to help write down these stories. They helped shape the New Testament Scriptures that we read today. They could have told this story very differently. You know, we very calmly went to Jesus and tapped him on the shoulder. And we said to him, Jesus, we know, much like the centurion earlier in chapter 8, that you can just say the word and you can calm this storm. So would you please speak now and make these waves go away and this wind stop? It could have made themselves look much better here. But no, they make sure to tell us Jesus called them oligopistoi, little faiths. Jesus, ever authoritative, rebukes the storm and complete calm. Complete calm. 
which leads to awe and wonder and amazement and this great question, what kind of man is this? And there's a really important truth for us to, to sit with here. The disciples at this point very much in process still. Still figuring out, discovering who Jesus is. There are some of us, we want to know all the answers before we get in that boat. We want to know how, how it's going to go down and if we're going to make it to the other side, okay, and what all the steps are going to be. But the invitation of Jesus is not to have all of our questions answered. It's to get into the boat. It is to follow him wherever he takes us on his terms, not on our terms. Now, real quick, this last section, maybe the, the weirdest part of the whole text today. Verse 28, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town, reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave. <laughs> now, four observations, and then we'll try to tie all of this together. First, notice, in each of these three scenes, the only characters who recognize Jesus for who he is are these demons. They call Jesus Son of God. And not only do they recognize Jesus, they also acknowledge the bigger story that they are a part of. That phrase, the appointed time, don't miss that. This refers some foreshadowing here to Jesus' death and resurrection, this recognition that their time is running out. Second, Jesus does a good thing, right? He relieves these two guys of this demonic oppression that had been wrecking their lives. But it happens in a very chaotic way. Jesus arrives on the shores of Gentile territory. He causes this huge scene. I mean, just imagine demon-possessed pigs running off a cliff into a lake. I want to see that. <laughs> Now, I want you to hold that intention with Jesus completely calming the storm in the previous scene. Third observation, when Jesus shows up, it is good news, but it is costly, and it is disruptive, and it's not always welcomed. The people of this town come out to see the commotion, what's going on here, but then they want Jesus to leave. He's disrupted their economy, made a huge mess. Someone had to clean that up. And they're like, just go. And then finally, Jesus once again just demonstrates his authority. And there's this weird thing going on with, with Jesus granting their request to go into the pigs, but he is the authority in this scene. They ask him, he says go, and they go. He's the one controlling the action, ruling over the natural and the spiritual world. 
The thread, the question running through each of these scenes, I think, is the question that the disciples ask in the boat. What kind of man is this? Jesus is authoritative. But underneath that, what kind of authority will we allow him to be in our lives? Some of the characters today reject him outright. Again, go, get out of here. Leave our region. Some have to sit with the cost of following him, and some are left bewildered by the experience. What kind of man is this? We cannot put Jesus into neat and tidy boxes. Sometimes Jesus is gentle and caring. Sometimes he brings complete calm to a chaotic situation, and then sometimes he creates the chaos. I've been through those sorts of chaotic moments, and I've experienced Jesus in a gentle whisper as the good shepherd leading me by still waters as the prince of peace. But then there have been moments where Jesus has really disrupted and messed up my very comfortable, nice life. I think I've shared this with you before, but... I had this, you know, my dream as a young adult was to make a bunch of money and live in Santa Cruz. And so honestly, following Jesus has made my life more difficult, messy, complicated, and challenging. And my guess is that you can tell a very similar story as well. If you've been following Jesus, there have been ways in which he has made your life more complicated. But I wouldn't trade that for anything because... I've been in the boat. And my hope is that you would say the same thing. You've been in the boat. You don't go through the storm if you're standing on the shore. You only go through the storm if you're in the boat. Now, I think the reason Jesus is so compelling and, and he speaks so authoritatively here, we understand the weightiness of his words. Because unlike the disciples, at least at this point in the story, we do know how this thing ends. We know that Jesus was willing to count the cost. We know Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearances as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. His death and resurrection are proof he was willing to pay it all, to restore right relationship, to be with us, to heal us, to cast out our demons, to call the best out of us, to challenge us, to save us. And because he suffered, because he is powerful over even death, he has the authority to define the terms. He has the authority to ask us for everything. And here's the crazy part. In the same way, when we get into that boat and we ride out storms with Jesus, that experience, those moments, that suffering lends authority, weightiness to our ability to share the good news of Jesus with other people. So a bunch of questions to close us. What kind of man is this? Who do you say that Jesus is? What kind of authority have you given him 
in your life? What kind of authority do you need to give him in your life? What cost do you need to embrace? What is your other side of the lake? And maybe the most important question is this. Do you need to get in the boat? Do you need to get in the boat? Let's pray. Father, we um, uh, recognize that this is a challenging word for us today. There were so many things in our world uh, reinforce this idea that life is all about seeking comfort, success, putting ourselves uh, at the top of the hierarchy, whatever language we want to put to it, God, that we are at the center of the action. And yet to live in your kingdom is to submit to your authority as king in our life. And getting in this boat, following you, it will be at times difficult. It will be at times more stormy than if we had stayed on the shore. But ultimately, God, it is worth it because you have laid your life down for us so that we can be in right relationship with you. We can experience abundant life here, eternal life forever. Father, I pray for uh, each and every one of us here today, whatever that challenge is for us, whatever that cost is, will we sit with that, will we weigh that, and will we step into that? Will we be willing to get into the boat and go wherever you lead us to follow you on your terms? Maybe we need to let go of some things we've been holding on to. Maybe we need to uh, embrace the challenge that we've been putting off. Maybe we just need to be grateful that we are in this boat and in the middle of this storm, but you are there with us. Whatever that is, God, I pray you would give us the courage to face that. And I pray especially this morning for those who have have maybe just been uh, sitting on that shore, so to speak, waiting to get in that boat. Would you give them the courage to take that step even right now? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.